0: My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations about difficult subjects. Tonight is the last in our series about sibling relationships. I'm going to be talking with Susan McHale about the role of gender and culture in forming sibling relationships. Susan McHale is director of the Social Science Research Institute and the Children, Youth, and Family Consortium. She's also a professor of human development at Penn State University. Her research focuses on children's and adolescents' family roles and relationships. She's particularly interested in gender and sibling dynamics in families. Professor McHale's research investigates the socio cultural contexts of family dynamics, including how parents' and youth values, practices, and daily experiences have implications for family life and youth adjustment in African American and Mexican American families. Welcome to Safe Space, Susan.
1: Thank you.
0: So you have spent a lot of time and published all manner of articles about sibling relationships, and I'm curious to start by just learning a little bit about you personally, How, what inspired you to devote so much of your life to these questions?
1: Well, I have siblings myself. I'm the second of four children. I have two sisters and a brother, and my siblings have always been extremely important in my life, and so when I started uh, my degree in developmental psychology and studying family influences on children, it was very surprising to me that so there was so little known about sibling relationships and sibling influences. That was a long time ago, and I would say that still, even now, um, today, uh, there's a far stronger interest in other kinds of relationships that children have with mothers, fathers, friends, and relatively speaking, we know much less about sibling relationships.
0: I, one of the things I read in one of your articles is that more kids grow up in a family with a sibling nowadays than in a family with a father, which was That's really correct. striking yeah. to me. Yeah, so in fact, th- this relationship is really primary.
1: It, it really is. Um, sibling relationships are, they're early in your life and they're likely... To be the longest-lasting relationships you have in your life, uh, you may marry and have your own children in the middle of your life, but your siblings there um, sometimes from the cradle to the grave.
0: Right. So when you said, you know, for that for you personally, your siblings were so important to you and sort of always have been, and that led to your interest in sibling influence. Would you say that your some of your important life choices were influenced by your siblings?
1: Um. I would say yes. I um, um, I had a sister who was a year older than I was, who was very stylish, and um, uh, I could not compete with her, so I became an academic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Known for their style. <laughs> not I, quite. <laughs> exactly. So, I see. So you... Um, kind of figured like she had that corner of the market covered, and so you branched out and became really good at something different.
1: That's uh, at least one theory about why that works. Yes, well, maybe let's talk
0: about that. So I know there's a whole theory, a whole school of thought about that, and maybe you could explain a little bit about that.
1: Well, um, a psychoanalyst called Alfred Adler was writing actually was a student of Freud who broke with Freud over Freud's interest in sexuality as um, or sex and aggression as the core of uh, human psychological function. And um, Adler was very interested in um, how families operated. Um, he moved beyond the focus on the mother-child relationship and thought that siblings really were central in personality development. He was interested in... Um, social comparisons and power dynamics in families, and he thought that people's personalities were formed by how they were treated relative to their siblings. Um, He coined the idea of the inferiority complex to describe what it was like to be the less favored child in the family, and he thought that um, unequal treatment of siblings Led to those kinds of feelings, and that um, feelings of inferiority followed kids uh, the rest of their lives.
0: So, it became... his advice
1: to parents was to to make sure that um, their children were able to find, you know, esteem and regard, and have access to family resources um, in a democratic way, so that uh, family resources were shared across children, in order to make children feel. Uh, positive about themselves and and ultimately well-adjusted.
0: So that no one felt inferior in a sense. Correct. So if we take the example of you and your sister, it's like, so she, you may have felt inferior around style, but you got to feel really good about how smart you were and your work as an academic so that it didn't affect you so much. Would that be the idea?
1: Right. Yeah, that's the idea.
0: Interesting. And then I know that Frank Soloway, who wrote a very popular book about how kids sort of choose different niches and sort of maximize their strengths that way. He built on Adler's ideas, I understand. Will you tell me a little bit about Salloway's work?
1: Yes. um, Frank Salloway looked at um, artists and politicians and uh, intellectuals uh, and uh, and their birth order, and his argument was that um, because firstborns are privileged, by having the highest status in the family, they're powerful because they're always bigger well at least for early years of life right um, and they know more um, they they were privileged by having their parents all to themselves to begin with um, you know and in, in, in traditional societies firstborns had um, rights of inheritance that laterborns didn't especially if they were boys and so and so Suloway argued that um, Uh, Later-born children were, as the book title suggests, born to rebel against the status quo. That because they were um, not privileged by the status quo, that later-borns would be more likely to um, be rebels and radicals and uh, try to see the world in a new way. And so um, although there's a lot of data about first-borns being high-achievement-oriented and and being high-achievers, um, Selloway argued that later-born's um, achievements were more likely to break the mold, to break the set, to be uh, radical and different, as opposed to just mere achievement.
0: And does that is that borne out in the
1: literature? Well, um, he gives a lot of examples in his book. Um, I haven't seen in, when when researchers have tried to systematically study these kinds of processes, especially. Um, Studying them as they unfold over time, uh, there there is less evidence for this. We we found a little bit of evidence in a study that we did that examined uh, children's personality characteristics across the course of childhood and adolescence, and we found that um, although firstborns described themselves as more um, what we call instrumental, they said they were brave and uh, adventurous and competitive when they were children. Um, by the t- end of of adolescence, uh, later born children were describing themselves more in those more adventurous ways, and the first born children were getting more sort of conforming. Mm. So that was a little bit of evidence, but um, other otherwise, there just there just hasn't been strong systematic scientific evidence. And he's giving Sullivan so is giving examples of historical uh, figures, case studies, if you will, um, uh, as opposed to you know, looking for large samples and following them systematically over time and measuring them in certain ways to test predictions.
0: Right. So so we have already these ideas about you know Adler's ideas about favoritism and inferiority and then Sellaway's ideas about birth order and then you bring in your interest in gender and culture to that and it, it starts to get complicated. Tell me a little bit about what your research has taught you about how gender Impact you know, interacts with these factors in shaping how siblings affect each other.
1: Well, our our team inter- is interested in gender dynamics in families broadly. So um, we tend to study two-parent families because we're interested in mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. Um, most research in child development focuses on one child in, in the family. Um, kind of assuming that if you understand the experiences of one child in a family, you you can understand how families operate to socialize children. But um, our premise is that you're missing a lot of what happens in families if you just focus on one child, that a child's life in a family is going to be quite different if she's a girl with a sister than a girl with a brother, Um, if she's an older sister versus a younger sister She'll have different opportunities for roles, like sibling caregiving, like the person to set the good example, like the person who has to break new ground for her parents as she grows up. Um, These are all uh, family dynamics that you wouldn't notice if you didn't study two children in a family. And the same thing with gender. Um, When parents have both a son and a daughter, they uh, have different kinds of opportunities to... Uh, to do gender socialization so if they tend to be more egalitarian you know and and they're treating their son a certain way they may be especially careful to give their daughter the same kind of opportunities because they they want their daughter and son to be treated equally if parents are more traditional in their attitudes and they have a son and a daughter then um, they may um, you know really work hard to treat their two children differently Uh, so depending on parents attitudes about gender, um, whether or not they have a son, or a son and a daughter can um, have major implications for family gender dynamics. When, when fathers don't have any sons, um, they may have to rely on the daughter to, um, to, to enjoy their parenthood. I remember interviewing a mother whose um, two daughters became avidly involved in sports and she explained that um, she promoted her daughters. It wasn't an interest of hers particularly, but her, her husband was a sports nut. And she knew that um, because there were no sons in the family, the father would be, you know, just not be involved unless there was a, a set of activities that he could invest himself in around his fathering role. And so early on, she got her daughters involved in sports, and and he became their coach. And he was a completely involved and committed father um, of daughters, even though, um, you know, he had envisioned himself to be a father who would be spending a lot of time with a son.
0: Right. Of, Of course, how we picture how it's going to be as a parent is so often not how it turns out to be as a parent. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There's so many ways we don't have control of that. Um, so I'm curious. Well, tell
1: you, can I tell you one anecdote uh, yes. that sibling people talk about? That is that uh, when parents have one child, they think that they have a lot of influence on their child's development. <laughs> but after they have a second and see how different the second child can be, even though they're the same parents, they begin to believe that, children have an awful lot of influence on their own development and on how their parents treat them.
0: I used to joke, Susan, that when I was a therapist, before I became a parent, I thought it was all the parents' influence. And then after I became a parent, I thought it was all the child's temperament. <laughs>
1: yep. <laughs> the tendency to
0: blame the parents until you become one. It was right. very eye-opening to me. Yes. We've well-
1: actually tested that idea. We've given parents a scale and asked them um who do they think they ha- has more influence parents or children and when parents have both a son and a daughter they're more likely to say that children have influence when and even when they have same sex kids they're more likely to say parents have influences have and more influence
0: now what do you think makes the difference if you have two different genders to imagine that it's really the child and not you
1: well, I think that, you know, there are biological differences between boys and girls that play out. Not, you know, not all boys are highly masculine, not all girls are highly feminine, and there's lots of different ways to be masculine and feminine, but all things being equal, um boy-girl pairs are probably are different, more different than than same-sex pairs and parents are picking up on that. They they think that they can socialize their their, you know, daughter to be have interests that boys do or their sons to have interests that girls do. And it's harder than you think.
0: I'm really struck by that. You know, I know so many parents who entered this process with very deep egalitarian values, very much, you know, no Barbies for the girls and teaching the boys, you know, all this sort of gender stereotypical things like cooking and cleaning and so on and so forth. And, um, and how struck so many that it seems like parenting so often makes parents more essentialist than they started out because the the boys really do want to play with the guns or the trucks. The girls really don't have any interest in that. And I'm struck at how common that is. Do you find that often?
1: Absolutely. Um, Now, gender is multidimensional, and so interests, things that people are interested in, are one of the first gender differences we see in children emerging. It's one of the things we study in our project because it's such an early-onset gender difference difference. Um, we gave our daughter trucks and cars, and she was the firstborn. And, you know, she obediently, you know, played around with them every once in a while. And then our son was born, and, and the intensity of his interest in spinning tires and, you know, watching the wheels go around and driving the trucks, it was just not, not comparable. There's just, no, there's just no similarity at all. But there are other ways that um, parents who are interested in gender equity – can have profound effects on their children, and one of those ways is attitudes.
0: So Tell me about that.
1: Even though you know my son is very got very strong traditionally masculine interests in vehicles and computers and things like that, and my daughter's interests are more literary, which is a gender stereotypical difference. They both have very egalitarian attitudes. You see what I mean? That, yeah. That so you've taught them to bl- in- go ahead. Just because you're gendered in one way, you're not necessarily sex-typed in another.
0: Right. And so they they may value each other equally, or they may learn to treat people who are different with great respect. Correct. And not to assume that one exists to take care of the other, for instance. That's right. So that was something that really intrigued me in your work, is looking at caregiving relationships among siblings. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about how gender seems to play into that in in terms of the older sibling having caregiving responsibilities for the younger.
1: Well, that is, you know, obviously the typical way that these things unfold. And, of course, it's not just older siblings. Girls are are more involved in caregiving than boys. In, you know, um, sort of middle class um, European-American families, the the number of children is small and you don't see as much caregiving as you do in um, some minority groups. Um, Families tend to be larger and um, sisters, um, for example, with our Mexican-American sample, sisters um, tend to be more involved in caregiving um, than they do in the European-American families. Um, And um, the role of the sister as a caregiver um, we're we're seeing can have um, long-term implications. Um, For example, what we have found, um, and this is a study with um, my colleague Kimberly Uptegraff at the Arizona State University, um, kids who have older sisters as adolescents are less likely to engage in risky behavior than kids who have brothers, and uh, other people have talked about females and families being the kin keepers. You know, they're the ones that keep the family together. They're the ones who are in charge of the domestic um, of life. And so having an older sister who's home and, and therefore a younger sibling, regardless of whether that child is a girl or a boy, is a, is a role, is a, is a caregiving opportunity that, um, at least in our data, seem to ha- seems to have a very positive effect on, on, on adolescents.
0: And so, I mean, in a way, you know, I'm listening to you, and part of me is is rebelling against what you're saying. Part of me is thinking, well, why if we're looking at how egalitarian parenting can shape attitudes, can the older brother not be supported to become more of a caregiver, more of a kinkeeper?
1: Oh, absolutely. I I am sure that that's a possibility. It's just that in the um, Mexican-American families, one of the reasons we were interested in them is because um, of anecdotal data suggesting that they're more gender stereotypical. Uh And so um, in in those families, the male role may be more pronounced, and that's why we we got that effect in the Mexican-American families. We we don't get it in our European-American families, where the gender attitudes tend to be more egalitarian. I see. And so when you say the male
0: gender role is more pronounced, what would that be? What are you referring to?
1: Well, um, sisters spend more time at home. Um, boys spend more time outside the home. We we call children and adolescents in the evening to ask them how they spent their time that day, and so we know about who they spend their time with and what kinds of activities they're engaged in, and we use those kinds of data to kind of get a sense of uh, sort of a daily diary of of children's and families' lives. And so we know that um in these Mexican-American families, girls are, are spending more time uh, at home. Mm. And, um, the, you know, the boys have more freedom. They're out and gone more, which, of course, is um, a, a risky possibility for right you know, getting involved in, you know, unsupervised peer activities. <laughs> but if you have an older sister at home who might be telling you that <laughs> you need to be home, you know, as a younger adolescent and keeping an eye on you while parents are working or, or um, you know, Doing other things, um, it it seems to be a, a protection for young adolescents. So, in this context.
0: I want to come back to where you started because you started talking about Adler and his research on favoritism and the impact it had on siblings, subsequent siblings. And um, I'm curious because I know that some of the research you've done suggests that in, um, I don't know if it was Mexican American families or African American families where you found that actually the impact of favoritism was less destructive to the other siblings than it was within the sort of classic white middle-class families. I'm curious to hear more from you about that and how you understand why that's so.
1: Yeah. Well, there's a huge tradition of research on social comparisons. that, you know, Adler was one of the people who started it. And the assumption was that, um, you know, if somebody's um, being treated better than you, uh, life is sort of a zero-sum. and, and the more they have, the less you'll have. That's a that's a mindset from a, an individualistic kind of culture, that if you win, then I lose. Whereas in a more communal kind of culture, if somebody in my family wins, that means I win too. Mm. And so Mexican-American families are, are characterized by what people have referred to as high levels of familism values. These are communal-oriented values, that what's good for... Me is what's good for my family. That you know, what makes me happy and what makes me proud is my family. It's not about my individual um, situation and rewards. It's what what happens in my to my family and in my family. So what our research showed was that in Mexican American families, when children and when adolescents reported high levels of familism values, they could be treated quite differently from their siblings, and they didn't show the same you know, low self-esteem, risky behavior, sibling relationship negativity, as 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 Mexican American kids who espoused lower levels of familism values. So the same cultural group varies in the degree of familism values that they have, and these familism values are protective for kids in the context of differential treatment.
0: I'm really struck by that because you know from from within my kind of middle- class white waspy world that, is, that seems so generous. it's hard to even imagine that the mm-hmm. less favored child would be just proud because it was good for the team, even if it yeah. was personally wounding. That's really very striking.
1: Because in you know most of the research to date has been done with European American samples, and the you know it, over and over again you see that differential treatment is linked to um, poorer adjustment outcomes. Some of the early work looking at very young children, you know, two-year-olds, um, were, was reported that kids were just vigilant about how they were treated relative to how a sibling was treated. It you know, emerged very early on, and, and children were very reactive to it. So it was it was a surprise to see that um, we just didn't get those um, negative effects when kids espouse these values. I'm always... so that's something parents can do is to push the idea of family and um, minimize the sort of individualism of their siblings, of their children, of their offspring.
0: Right. I'm always struck because people talk about needing to teach children morality, and my experience is that children are born with a very keen sense of justice, and their mm-hmm. their unfairness sensors are exquisitely
1: sensitive. Well, that's very true in, in these European-American families, but I, I, I guess what I think our research on mexican-american families suggest is that, um, that there are different views of what is just yes. and um, that you know that I should have the same as you and you shouldn't get any more than me even if you know you might need it um, <laughs> yes is uh, you know culture specific so it's very powerful
0: I um, I want to ask a little bit also about immigrant families and the role of the oldest child as kind of the cultural or even maybe linguistic interpreter, and how that mm-hmm. shapes yeah. relationships among siblings,
1: well, yeah, and most of the many of the families in our uh, mexican American sample were immigrant families um, first generation or second generation families and um, you know in the interviews that were um, done with the families, um, you know good proportion of the parents were interviewed in Spanish because. Um, that was their preferred language. Uh and so you know children do serve as cultural brokers and that may be another reason why those older sisters were so important in that context because they were the the you know taking care of the family, helping to translate um you know the the cultural demands and expectations for their younger siblings, you know what what's going on in school, you know keep t- taking keeping track of homework and um activities and um, requirements for graduation and so forth that, that um, you know, the brothers were just not that focused on. Mm-hmm. So that, that is a very important role for, for kids and immigrant families. Not something we studied too directly ourselves, um, per se.
0: We're going to have time for just one more question, uh, Susan. I want to ask you a little bit about what the research shows about how close sibling relationships in adulthood are associated with both better emotional and physical health and well-being, and I'd love to just close with asking you to tell me a little bit about that research.
1: Well, there's you know even less research on uh, siblings in adulthood than there is on siblings in childhood, so you know we don't know much. But the limited literature that there is available suggests that those relationships are very close. People move apart in early adulthood as they, you know, move out of the family home and get jobs and have their own families. But um, um nonetheless, siblings most of the data that are available suggests that siblings do stay in touch one way or the other and that those who are close to their siblings have uh higher scores on mental health measures and even some physical health measures as well.
0: It's very it's very encouraging if you have a closer if you're lucky enough to have a close sibling. Yes. Yes. So, Susan McHale, I want to thank you so much for being my guest and for uh, teaching me some of what what the research really shows about siblings. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you for letting me talk about my favorite topic.
0: And do you have a website if people want to follow up and learn more? Do you have a a resource that you can offer people to follow up on?
1: Uh, Gee, um, I don't have an interactive website, unfortunately, but they can just come to Penn State's website and type my name in. They'll
0: find me. And can they get access to some of your writing that way?
1: Uh, Yes, they can.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. My guest tonight has been Susan McHale, a professor of human development at Penn State University, talking about the role of gender and culture on sibling relationships. If you'd like to listen to this show, and again, it's an entirety, or uh, email a link to a friend, please go to our website, spaceradio.com. You can also subscribe to get weekly announcements and um, listen to any of the former shows there. You can download our show from the iTunes podcast store, and you can like us on Facebook. Coming up next is Watchdog.